Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, here on day two of Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, HII's new president and CEO, Chris Kastner, and our roundtable on key takeaways from this great conference and trade show. But first... But first, our brief conversation with the 78th Secretary of the United States Navy, Carlos Del Toro. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in NASA. Nashville, Tennessee. Here's our brief conversation with Secretary Del Toro. And it is my honor to welcome on the program the 78th Secretary of the United States Navy, Carlos Del Toro. Sir, thanks very much for spending time with us. It's always great to be with you here. Last time we were together was at the Reagan Forum, and here we are at Sierra and Space. Uh, indeed. Uh, so I want to start with a tough one and then go to some yeah. easier questions, right? Members of Congress have been very direct about what they uh, think about the budget. They say after decades of asking for more ships, the United States Navy wants to decommission 24 of them. Hey, why are you spending $400 million updating a cruiser and an amphibious ship if you're going to get rid of them. What's the case you're going to make to members of Congress on why this is the right move at the right time in the right way? Without question, we need a more capable Navy. And it's finding the right uh, combination of capacity, capability, to deliver the greatest amount of lethality that really matters most in deterring our aggressors worldwide. Um, when you, you know, if they ask you uh, for what other kinds of trade-offs can be made, what are the other kinds of trade-offs the Navy can make, especially if they force you to keep those ships? Well, there's hundreds of trade-offs, obviously, and we always have to balance with the needs with regards to readiness, capacity, and modernization. And so we're constantly, you know, looking at where the trade-offs can be to make come to the right decision. But this budget, without question, supports the strategy that we have currently in place. Um, let me ask you a question about more money. At the end of the day, um, there's a sense that a lot of the cuts made were somewhat cynical so that the department ends up getting more money. If lawmakers see it fit, and there's talk that there could be $40 billion more billion, have you identified how that additional money would be spent? Well, we're not gaming this at all. That couldn't be farther from the truth, actually. We're faced with a whole bunch of threats that we have to provide capabilities to address, and so difficult trade-offs have to be made, actually. And so it's all about balance, finding the right balance to accomplish that you know but as with regards to future resources that become available I guarantee the American taxpayer that we're going to put it to the best use possible to make sure that we and the American taxpayer gets the return on investment that they so deserve um, you made a, a fascinating point at your lunchtime comments where you talked about not jumping into a program too quickly, right? right. You, you were there when LCS was born, when you were yes, in Ken Krieg's office where uh, we first met. Uh, from your standpoint, what's the way to get this right? Whether light amphibious warship, whether the new destroyer, what's the right mix to get there fast but get there right? Well, we've got to give our requirements officers the amount of time to work with the acquisition force to come up with the right design to meet the threat. Right? And then we have to work with industry to understand the art of what's possible and not possible so that we can come up with the best design possible to meet the mission. And that's basically what we're doing with regards to the law and with regards to constellation and everything else. But it takes patience, it takes dedication on the part of all of our stakeholders to work together to come up with the right design and not one that perhaps we might regret downstream. Thank you so much for what you do and thanks to all our followers and have a great uh, Sierra and Space uh, conference here. Thank you. Bye-bye.
While here at Sierra Space, we sat down with Chris Kastner, the new president and CEO at HII, the company that, through most of its history, has been known as Huntington Ingalls Industries. Here's our conversation with Chris Kastner. Chris, thanks very much for joining us, and congratulations on the new assignment. Yeah, thank you very much, Fago. Glad to be here. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, let me ask you about your priorities. Uh, you're on the job now for a little bit less than a month. You took over on April uh, the 1st. Talk to us a little bit about the priorities that you're setting for the company. Yeah, so it's, it's very clear. Uh, we set out uh, to put together a very a deliberate strategy to increase our backlog uh, in shipbuilding over the last few years and then to invest in technologies that would enable uh, the Navy to execute their mission. Uh, so my priorities are very clear. It's to execute that backlog uh, and get those ships into service as quickly as we can and to continue to invest in technology so the Navy can execute their mission. Uh, you, you know, your uh, predecessor and I talked often about the interleaving strategies that actually these investments in technical services, engineering, and unmanned actually supports uh, your core business. Congratulations on the rebranding exercise as HII, uh, although there are some who, who the name Huntington Ingalls Industries will be near and dear to, the, uh, to their hearts, but still uh, part of the company, and Brooke and her team did a terrific job in, in rebranding. How do you address some of those, you know, it's, it's interesting what you pick up on the show floor that the company has still put shipbuilding very centrally, but there are some who say, oh, you know, that's evidence of the company not really being as focused or, you know, they've had some challenges on shipbuilding or somehow shipbuilding looks unclear. How do you respond to those who somehow look at the expansion and the growth of the company as somehow diluting its shipbuilding core, which I'm not necessarily sure is the message that I've ever picked up from the company? Yeah, absolutely. And, and shipbuilding will, will always be our core. Uh, but when I, when I speak to, to Navy leadership, they absolutely understand what we're doing. I mean, we're investing in LVC training, we're investing in AIML, we're investing in cyber, we're investing in unmanned. This is where the fight wants to go. And they're our primary partner, and we, we take it as our responsibility to invest in those technologies. Uh, and the, the other part of that is their growth markets as well. So it provides us for an avenue for growth uh, for our shareholders. So it helps our employees, helps, helps shareholders, and primarily helps our customer execute their mission. Uh, when you, you know, given that you're in such a long cycle business, which is, which is shipbuilding, um, and you look five years out, whether you want to use this baseline as a budget, this budget as a baseline, where do you see the most interesting pockets of growth that are going to shape where you are going to invest in the future? Yeah, so shipbuilding will continue to grow. Modestly, but with the budget, it'll continue to grow. But I think the most interesting place right now is uh, unmanned and AIML the explosion of big data that needs to be ingested, analyzed, and utilized to help the customers execute their mission um, is really an amazing market, and we need to take advantage of it. Uh, when you look at that, how much of this is organic uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? I mean, there's this, um, I, and I mentioned this because I interviewed Tom Siebel of uh, C3AI, and he said, look, you know, folks sometimes have a tendency that they think they can do this on their own, whether it's the government or anybody else, whereas actually there's a lot of specialization and an enormous investment, for example, in those algorithms. From your standpoint, what's the blend? How much of this will be organic within your boundaries, and how much of this is something you do in partnership? including with a commercial partner, for example? Yeah, so we do a lot of this organically. Um, we do utilize some commercial tools, uh, but, but the vast majority of it is, is organically driven. And we do a lot of this under IRAD uh, with the government. So we, we were very good, and Align was historically very good at utilizing uh, development tools and development contracts uh, from the government. 
um, uh, that they continue to, to take advantage of um, to develop those markets. Um, let me ask you a little bit specifically about the budget. Um, what are uh, elements of this budget that you like? What are elements of this budget that you find uh, problematic? And what does this tell us about where we're going to be in a couple of years? Yeah, strong support for shipbuilding. So uh, that support continues. Uh, support for LPD 32, which is very important to the to the workforce down in Mississippi. Uh, I'm concerned a bit about the AnFibs uh, and some of the statements around it being the last AnFib or last LPD to be procured. I don't think that's consistent with the uh, Marine Corps, the Navy strategy. So we'll have to work on that uh, over the next year. And we've invested in a facility, an amazing workforce, uh, an amazing design of a ship that's doing great job out there. Uh, for the Navy and the Marines, and um, we just think that uh, to let that atrophy uh, would be a, a significant mistake uh, for the nation. Uh, but but confident and comfortable with the budget that was set out. Um, I, I, I would also add there's some really interesting things about workforce development and supplier development that I think are very important um, that have been put in place in the 23 budget that, uh, that it was very uh, forward-looking by the Congress uh, to put that in place to develop our workforce and, and keep our supply base healthy. Uh, not to not to sound like I'm advertising for any of your products because that's not my intention. But uh, Deputy Secretary, a uh, former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, used to often talk, especially when he was in the Navy under, about the LPD-17 hull as actually being the uh, the ideal hull for whether it's a future cruiser or a missile defender or a command and control ship. As you, I mean, where is the state of that discussion with the Navy? It's a great platform. It's a stable hull. It has enormous volume. You guys designed it to carry a lot of missile tubes in it. So, I mean, if, if people are like, we're tube short, there's a way to right, actually right. get tubes to see. Do you think that there's enough consideration and what's the case to be made for actually that platform being a much more foundational combatant platform than an amphib? Yeah, so we call the Swiss Army knife of the Navy. It, because of the volume and the capacity it has, it can do a lot of things. Um, the, the discussion around uh, converting it to do something broader uh, has really not uh, created a lot of traction. Um, so I don't see that, but I do see it as potentially, I mean, the requirement for additional amphibs is absolutely there. Um, so I think it'll be additional LPDs. Um, they've made that design very repeatable. The workforce is in place, the management team is in place. It would be a pity to really truncate one of the most successful programs in the Navy. I want to ask you a two-part question on destroyers. One is uh, Flight 3, uh, which you and your partner, Bath Ironworks, um, right, first unit was commissioned. Talk to us a little bit about what the outlook for that program is and how that program actually ramps into the next generation destroyer, which uh, the Navy wants to develop. And I've got a follow-up question on that to, to see how we do that right. But first, give us sort of the, the laydown on what Flight 3 looks like and how that serves as a bridge to the next program. Sure. So Flight 3, the first uh, first ship was christened a couple weeks ago down in Pascagoula. Uh, both uh, Ingalls and Beth Ironwork are progressing well in, the, in those Flight 3 ships. Uh, most importantly there is the power and the radar uh, that need to be uh, utilized and taken advantage of uh, in the Pacific. Uh, so that program is going, going very well. Um, uh, DDGX, uh, it, there are significant discussions uh, between Beth Ironworks, ourselves, and the Navy on DDGX uh, concept design studies and evaluating the, the correct uh, design for that boat. Um, I think a lot of lessons learned uh, going from incorporating the new radar and the new power um, on DDG-51 will be utilized um, on DDGX. I think it's important to make sure that that design is completely ironed out and, and understood prior to converting. And the most important thing is don't stop the DDG-51 line 
um, while you're waiting for the next next ship to be designed and developed. It needs to be a fairly seamless transition between the two. I think the Navy understands that. I think they're doing it very smartly right now. Um, how much faster can you move? Because we've seen throughout history, whether it was uh, in World War One, whether it was in World War Two, whether it was in the Cold War, um, the shipbuilding industrial base can move at blinding speed in order to be able to, I mean, you guys developed the Essex-class aircraft carrier in something like two years and built the whole line out. And I mean, it's, it, to say that it's one of the most incredible achievements in history would be an understatement, right? Up there with the atom bomb, we were developing big deck aircraft carriers and doing them fast. From, from your standpoint, can we move faster? And what are the keys to be able to move faster? Because it seems like, you know, we spend 10 years of AOAs, you know, analyses of alternatives, and then, you know, sort of another 10, 20 years of engineering. What, what's the way to do this, do it fast at a time when we do feel a palpable threat? And we're trying to get a lot of ships for maybe not as much money as we'd like to spend. Yeah, I think most importantly in shipbuilding is predictability of the design uh, and the requirements. Uh, once they start to creep, when they start to change, it creates unpredictability, creates a change in your manufacturing process, um, and just delays everything. Um, so the key to speed in shipbuilding is predictability and design. Uh, stable requirements, and then we can go. But as things change, it just creates delays. Or is the Navy doing a better job not making some of those changes, right? I mean, even ship to ship to ship, there were changes. What's what's going on in terms of how the customer is approaching it to actually take uh, that frustration point, right? I, they understand, you understand they're the customer and you always want to satisfy them, but each change has a price tag associated with it. Yeah, so I think, I think it's been uh, very thoughtful. A great example is the LPD program. Uh, thoughtfully incorporate changes between LPD 26, 27, 28 to 930 um, and do them, do them in a thoughtful way and start the design early so you can incorporate them um, and not miss schedule. So I think the Navy's learned a lot. I think we've been involved in that process and our, our peers have been involved in that process. Um, and I think they're incorporating those lessons learned into uh, the next VCS program, the next DDG program, and as we build 79, 80, and 81, very thoughtfully thinking through um, changes and how changes are incorporated. Um, two quick uh, programmatic questions, and then I want to ask you about uh, workforce. Um, first is um, submarines. Uh, there is a drive in order to be able to build as many attack submarines as, as we can. We're, we're still not up to two yet. Uh, the whole industrial base is struggling to do that. And then you're going to add uh, Columbia, which is sort of three SSN equivalents. So that brings you to five SSN equivalents. Then there's the potential Australia uh, transaction, which could add um, even more to that, right? What are some of the are we making the right kind of investments to get that capability up and be able to deliver these ships faster? Because we started kind of optimistically that we're going to get there. Everybody was ahead of schedule, and we've been seeing schedules slip because the industrial base is spinning as fast as it possibly can. Are we making the right kinds of investments to try to get us there? Yeah, so I think we are making the right investments, uh, both in General Dynamics and, and at HI, for the, and they're a great partner for the uh, two VCS and the one Columbia class. All that capital... Uh, has been identified, invested. Um, you know, Omicron wasn't great uh, for the VCS program and put us back a little bit, but we're very close to being on pace to a, a two per year uh, VCS delivery. Uh, so I'm, I'm comfortable we'll get there. Uh, it's it's going to take some time. We're going to fight through this labor situation coming out of Omicron, uh, but I, I'm com I'm comfortable with the the uh, submarine industrial base. 
Uh, let me ask you a, a ship support contract and, and ask you then a workforce uh, question. Um, the Navy cannot repair ships fast enough. Some of these retirements will change that picture a little bit. Uh, then again, there is a little frustration that actually relatively new ships will be pastured in this process, including a, a cruiser and an amphibious ship that hundreds of millions of dollars have already been spent on. Um, you know, what are, are, are we nationally making the right kinds of investments? I know the ship, uh, Shipyard Infrastructure Improvement Program, the SIOP, was critical to be able to generate that capacity. Uh, the trouble is that we're not quite spending as much money each year as we need to be spending in order to be able to generate that capacity, both at public and private yards. What, what are, are you comfortable with the roadmap that exists and the investments that are being made if we are going to be able to, and, and the changes that have to be made from a contractual standpoint to get this work and to get this work moving faster. Yeah, PSYOP has to happen, right? The, the, um, the public yards need to be invested in so they can, they can get back on schedule and be efficient. Um, but we've rebuilt our workforce uh, and the processes to do um, maintenance and availabilities uh, for VCS and LA-class submarines. Uh, we should not let that atrophy as a nation. Um, so there should be a consistent plan and a consistent schedule, uh, uh, both um, at our partners' yard and our yard um, on helping out that industrial base. Um, it's just not the public or private. We shouldn't be used for surge capacity. Once we've rebuilt the capacity, which has been expensive for both the Navy and us to rebuild, we should utilize it. It should be a consistent stream of work. So you're going to have to rely um, on, the private, uh, on the private yards for maintenance, both of submarines and on surface ships, um, because that's a capacity um, uh, that if we don't utilize it, it'll just go away. I want to take you to a workforce question. Um, you know, you mentioned Omicron and, and some of the challenges uh, uh, associated with it. And one of the challenges we're seeing is a great retirement. And indeed, um, you know, whether it's taking it, it, the challenge isn't just getting people in on the in the shipyard to accept overtime hours, which folks would scramble to do, but actually to be able to fill some of these jobs. You guys have a very selective program, drawing talent from all around the nation and indeed the world to go through your course to be able to create you know a great career in shipbuilding. And yet people are saying, look, it's 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 extremely hard work. Uh, it's out in the open uh, and in the elements. Are you going to be able to fill the jobs that you have? And do we need at some point some form of national program, whether it's tax breaks or scholarships or something else, to actually attract people to jobs that are as critical as any other job in, the, in, in national security and are as skills-based as making satellites, right? I mean, folks, I think, have a tendency of not recognizing that even though right. it's an aircraft carrier, it's the precision of a Swiss watch. Right, right. Yeah, no, Vago, it's a great point. Um, and we lost people across all... Uh, experience levels within and all ages uh, during Omicron and then coming out of Omicron. We lost the 25-year-old, the, the 35 to 40-year-old experienced person, the person right before retirement. So it's a big deal for us. Um, the good news is we've rebuilt workforces before. We've done this. We've done this after Hurricane Katrina. I was down in uh, Mississippi when that happened, and they actually rebuilt an entire workforce. So how do we do it? We fall back on our apprentice schools, which are world-class relationships with community colleges, relationships with the high schools, uh, to, to find those shipbuilders that, that understand how hard that work is, believe in the mission, and want to come to work every day. So I'm not saying it's not going to be a challenge because applications are down 
right? Retention is tough. Uh, but I think we can come through it. It's just going to take a lot of hard work. And I would add that um, Congress has done a lot of good work in workforce development here. Um, Jack Reed up in Rhode Island uh, has a really good program to and we're going to, um, we've told that to our representatives in Virginia and potentially they, they will um, uh, step up to participate in that as well. But it's a really interesting workforce development program funded to, to bring people to the trades um, that we think is very important for national security. Uh, you, are you comfortable if there's another Omicron, right, BA2? Um, are, you, are you ready for another? Every time we've thought we've, the fever is broken, we have another fever. Um, are, you, are you comfortable that BA2 will crest and pass over us and you'll keep delivering on time and on schedule, on budget? Yeah, yeah. shipbuilders are tough. Uh, we'll, we'll always, we'll take care of the shipbuilders and they'll come to work, right? If we, if we solve for our employees, I th we think we'll be fine. Chris, thanks very much for everyone's following seas and look forward to seeing you down in sunny uh, Newport News. Thank you, Vago. Appreciate it. And a brief word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us now for some color commentary on this second day of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show are none other than retired United States Navy Commander Brian McGrath uh, of the Ferry Bridge uh, Group Consultancy, who is a Navalist of the First Order, and our very own contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus, uh, the co-host of the Cavus Ships podcast, along with your co-conspirator, Chris Cervello, uh, who is our producer. Brian, thanks so much for joining us, and Chris, thank you. Excellent to be here. Great to be here, Vago. All right, guys. Uh, so, um, messages. Brian, start us off. Uh, you're one of the people who actually thinks that the Navy might be on good footing in terms of some of the decisions that it's making. A lot of criticism, obviously, from Elaine Luria and others. Uh, the Secretary of the Navy got that question at, at the luncheon today. From your standpoint, is the Navy on the mark? Uh, Navy's been talking for decades about more ships, and it's getting rid of 24 of them. I, I'd like Wants to... Wants to get rid of them. I'd like to... Uh, correct one thing you said. I don't think they're making good decisions. I, make, I think they're making the least bad decisions. And all that are left are bad decisions. Um, uh, when, you, when you insufficiently resource an organization, that organization has to resource the things that are the highest priority to it. Older cruisers, even newer LCSs, and other programs platforms that many of us love and would like to see kept around are falling by the wayside because we aren't putting enough money into the Navy in general. So they're making good decisions out of bad circumstances would be the way I would say. Chris, I think you've got a little bit of passion uh, that backs up uh, your case. Uh, give us your sense on, on the decisions and some of the requests the, the Navy has been making, right? I mean, Erlaine Luria has spoke for many in, in sort of expressing outrage. This is billions of dollars we've spent that could have gone to other stuff that went into LCSs, amphibious ships uh, that were going to retire. From your standpoint, um, what's, what's your takeaway? What's your critique of what we're seeing? Well, there's, there's just so many levels of this, it is hard to know where to start. Um, I was speaking with someone today who was a former senior official in the Department of the Navy who, I said, what do you think about the Navy? He said, well, I'll tell you what, the number one thing you don't do is tell Congress you're going to buy, you're going to have a smaller fleet. So 285 right now is what the Navy is saying that they're driving to. So much for that 313 fleet, that 340 fleet, that 350 fleet, 55, 500, all those numbers, no, they're, at the moment it's 285. 313, 308, 312, right. there are a lot of numbers out there. Right, but nothing below 300. Now, 
the latest number we're driving to 285. We don't even know when that is, by the way, because they haven't they they cannot release a 30-year plan, mostly because the Deputy Secretary of Defense is, keeps wanting to review it over and over again. So there's no plan. We don't know where that is, but they're going smaller. That's not 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 a strategy that has that bodes well, that says success. The ships that they want to get rid of, that's what everybody's talking about. They're talking about that a lot more than the ships they want to buy. Um, a lot of those ships, the Navy has an excellent, totally logical reason to get rid of them. Helena and Olympia at Hull Life, for well, example, would be time, one of those it, ships. It's time for those two submarines to go unless they want to refuel them. That is correct. The uh, cruisers they want to get rid of for the most part. They want to, they're getting rid of 10 cruisers right now, by the way. They're getting five this year and five in 23. Nine of those 10 make perfect sense. One makes absolutely no sense at all, and they're not explaining it. One of them is a ship that they've just spent $200 million on to refurbish and bring it back, and now they're just throwing that away. So that's $200 million they don't care about. So thank you for talking about how much you care about money. Another ship that they've spent $200 million on is the USS Tortuga, LSD-46. They want to throw away that now. Totally, they've just absolutely thrown that money away, $400 million. So please, when you start talking to me about savings and stuff, yeah, that's great, and you don't care about that much money. But a lot of those cruisers are worn out. It's time to replace them. You could repair them. You could repair them forever like an old car, but it just, it just starts, it, it, it just simply isn't worth it anymore. So they have, a, they have a legitimate case to, to, to get rid of nine of the ten crews they're asking for. The LCSs, people like LCS, people don't like LCS, but the issue is can you adapt what you have to exist to new and emergent missions? And there's no appetite to do that. People would much rather throw things away and start with a new shiny program. Like the frigate, which is fine, it's a good program. There won't be any frigates and any meaningful numbers deploying anywhere at all for a decade. So, great. You can't do anything more with your LCSs. One of them, by the way, the St. Louis, LCS-19, is undergoing the fix right now to, uh, to uh, install a new uh, combining gear to fix it. So it won't have any problems anymore in a, in a, in a few months, but it's on the DCOM and ECT list. And it's a, it's a two to three million dollar repair for each of the ships, right? I mean, you put it in contact. They are not, nobody has, has come out with a price for that. I think, I think it's probably arguably 10 or so less a ship about 10 million or so but that's 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 me talking from what I'm inferring interpreting from people I, I, I was told say single digit uh, millions of dollars per ship to replace uh, repair Brian I want to bring the conversation back to you you're a cruiser destroyerman you know how do you address the tubes question right I mean anytime a cruiser retirement comes up comes the question of oh my god you know at a time we need more and more and more tubes how do we work our way through this because those ships are old you know, it was on a hull that was not necessarily the most robust hull. We put a giant superstructure on it, ran them hard, and kept upgrading them to the point we had to put lead in the keel, right? How do we need to think through this problem? I think we have to think, um, you know, Chris brought up some really hard truths about um, how much money we've spent in the past. And we have spent that money, and over the course of time, if you walk away from that money, it looks like a bad deal and it looks like a bad thing. And I understand that. Look, walking away from a $200 million investment is not a good thing. The problem the Navy has is that it takes a lot of money to man, train, equip, modernize a large fleet. They're not getting the money they need for the fleet 
that they think they need to have to meet national security requirements. And so, lo and behold, I think the new administration has come in and in its approach to defense strategy is driving the Navy to a place where it can in fact say we are meeting the strategy with a smaller fleet because the strategy asks less of the Navy, at least in theory. This is what this is where integrated deterrence comes in. If you if you move away from a you know from the antediluvian concept of of, of conventional deterrence that I hold dear, which is cop on the beat with a big gun walking around saying don't mess with this security environment um, and you de and you de-weight the importance of forward presence and you start talking about a, a surge force a la Mr. Work under former uh, uh, Deputy Secretary Work you offer the, the prospect of savings you can have a smaller fleet you can spend less on uh, operations uh, and fuel. My fear is, though, that that Navy becomes less effective because it isn't in a position to do what navies do. Navies in Norfolk and navies in San Diego are useless. Navies that are forward and powerful and networked are useful. And we are increasingly moving towards a less useful Navy because that's what's being asked of it at a strategic level. Um, the cynics would say the Navy offered up all of the things that it would like Congress to be able to backfill. Chris, let me ask you a credibility question. Um, where, you know, we have discussed this question literally amongst us for decades. Um, did the Navy help its credibility case? Because one of the reasons why CAFIX has the 30-year shipbuilding plan, as did the last administration, was folks do not trust the Navy to make some of these decisions. Ultimately, what does the Navy have to do? What does Carlos del Toro as well as the CNO have to do in order to win back that trust from your perspective? <laughs> an awful lot more than what's going on now. I, I don't know. I, I don't have a prescription for that. That's not an easy answer. Um, and of course, the, the people at the top are what drive this, a lot of this. Um, the, the people at the top come and go, the leadership in the Pentagon, the, 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 the secretary, the, under the deputy secretary, all the secretaries, they're political appointees. The military is what nominally is there year in, year out. You have to make your case. The Army makes its case, the Air Force makes its case. It's not a question, it's not an issue. The Marines are a lot more, a lot smaller. They have the advantage of being more focused. Um, the Navy is the, is the operation that Elaine Lurie has keeps been saying it now as long as she's been on the Armed Services Committee. What's your message? Tell me, tell me what it is you guys do, what you need and why you need it. And they just can't say it. And they, they, they can't spit it out. And, and they're, they're failing on, on the Hill, but they fail in the building too. They failed, I mean, the last, we had Secretary Esper, who really didn't care much about the, the Navy. It wasn't something that I was interested in. His last year, yeah, this is cool. Let me get into this. It was almost like an instant hobby. And he wanted to play with it all. Then they left. <clears throat> now the new crowd comes in and they want to play with it again. But the Navy is not, can't defend its message to the senior leadership, clearly. I mean, it, does, it doesn't really matter who, who you're talking about in, those, in a senior leadership. The service is failing at this, and they, they fail to admit it at the highest levels. They fail to admit it, I think. 
Brian, uh, let me give you the last word on this from a credibility standpoint. What does the Navy have to do? Because to Chris's point, civilians come and go, but in the end, littoral combat ship is what it is because the Navy did not want to make it work and now is using this as an opportunity to try to get rid of those ships, even though there's merit to them. There are those who would say, critics would say that. Um, I think there is a good deal of banked uh, lack of credibility based on decisions made over the last 25 years that the present group, both the politicals and the flag officers, have to defend. At the end of the day, it sounds like they have found a key to fixing the odd-numbered LCSs. The end of the day, it sounds like the Ford elevators are fixed. Um, I hope that those who bestow and revoke credibility uh, are paying attention to the small victories that are being won. Um, whether or not the Navy offered up things that they know Congress is going to want to give back isn't a, it, it may be may you, it might be seen as a function of cynicism or it could be seen as a function of prioritization because the administration is driving the navy to value things right of of bang the stuff that we use during actual combat lcs gets prized and valued less making sure we have all those DDGs is valued more. That's, that's, a, that's a decision at the strategic level that the Navy is carrying out at the resource level. If we, if we have a more uh, nuanced and mature view of what naval power can do, and that is to deter war, conduct war, and, uh, and, and, and help bring war to termination, if we had that kind of a mature view of sea power, uh, the Navy wouldn't be offering up LCS. The Navy would be fixing LCS, man training and equipping LCS, and operating them forward. We just don't have the money to do that because the administration doesn't want that kind of Navy. Although uh, in its original inception, and I'm going to, uh, you know, Chris has done some great work on this, those ships were designed and are were developed in order to lighten the load on cruiser on the destroyer force and free it up so that in, you're not in peacetime. Correct. Right? Yes. They were never going to be substitutes for the warfighting capability of a DDG. Now the whole peacetime presence competition, that's all dirty language because it costs too much money. And so all we care about is what can the ship do once the shooting starts. And I think that is a really immature way to think of one's Navy. Guys, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. We have to have a longer conversation on all of this. Chris, thank you. Brian, thank you. Great to be here, Vago. Good to be with you. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. 
Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.